This morning I want to take a look at just one particular verse in your scriptures. It's in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2 and verse 19. Luke chapter 2 verse 19. And of course it is a part of the Christmas story. As you may recall, I've been preaching because of the Christmas season about the ancient Christmas. The time in which Christ was prophesied of and then the fulfillment of those prophecies. Uh, during this time of the year we do sing a very familiar song, a very uh, a special song to many people and that is of course Silent Night. Uh, generally we sing it here on Christmas Eve during our Christmas Eve service which we do not have this year. So will we sing it Rick? Will we sing Silent Night? We'll sing Silent Night on Christmas Day. Okay. And you'll recall that the words read, Round yon virgin, mother, and child. What in the world does that mean? Well, I suppose it helps if we, under, if we read the rest of the context. The context is this. All is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin, mother, and child. What does that mean? Well, it is obviously ancient or old English. And it simply means everything is calm, everything is bright, around, round, around that virgin mother over there and her child. Um, Yan is a synonym for yonder. Yan is an antiquated word that means that one over there. Round, yon virgin, mother and child. Everything is calm around that woman, that virgin yonder over there and her child. It's good to understand what we're saying when we do say it, isn't it? I mean, sometimes we sing, especially when it's an old hymn, and we, we don't necessarily understand what the words are, what the words mean, because, well, we just don't speak that way any longer. Most of the songs we sing here are more contemporary, but there's something rich about the old hymns as well. Uh, there, there's a theology that comes through it, if we understand the language. Uh, that m- much of um, contemporary music does not necessarily convey and this particular set of lyrics is a part of that. There, there was a particular calmness in the barn, uh, not because Mary was not in pain. She had just given birth, really. Not because it was comfortable and smelled good. It was a barn. So we can imagine what it was like. But there's a particular calmness Because the Savior is born, the Messiah is born. The fulfillment of prophecy is had. It's a wonderful story. Uh, Here's a refreshing review coming from a resident of Boston. Is that how they say it? Boston. In regards to, of all things, the Radio City Music Hall Christmas Spectacular. Uh, Look at what he says. The pleasant surprise was the scene of baby Jesus being born. High quality and elaborate costumes, nowadays, he writes, shows shy away from the meaning of Christmas, and this production should be praised for their work. That's right. Every year now, for a few decades, in New York City, Again and again and again, week after week, night after night, at a rather significant price per ticket. I don't know if any any of you have ever gone to see the show. 
they present the Christmas story. They present the birth of Jesus Christ. After the rockets have kicked up their feet, after Santa has come through, after all the elaborate ways in which we celebrate Christmas, in comes the shepherds and the wise men, Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus in Manhattan. Go figure. And these are not even Christians. The producers are not Christians. And yet they present it week after week. Here's another review. This one is not as refreshing. This one's a bit dated, but I kept it because it just stuck out in my mind. This was actually a review that was printed um, by uh, a man who uh, lives in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, He writes a column there in the Star-Telegram, or at least he used to. And he came to Manhattan to watch the show, and he loved it up until, guess what? Well, this is what he writes. He says, for the first hour and 40 minutes, that's 100 minutes, for the first hour and 40 minutes, the Big budget review succeeds in entertaining, building a holiday spirit, but then the tone changes rapidly. A recreation of the biblical Christmas story, complete with live animals, wise men and shepherds, dragged for a good 20 minutes. (laughs) An ominous voice narrates the entire story. Beginning with Isaiah's Old Testament prophecy with such seriousness that it turns preachy and overbearing. You almost expect the narrator to tell the Easter story and read the book of Revelation. He writes, the producers, had the producers been a church and its congregation known what to expect, terrific. But to lure spectators, of all faiths and non-faiths, with the promise of an entertaining holiday review, and then to ambush them with Christian theology is dated and borderline offensive, especially at a time when understanding of other cultures and beliefs is more important than ever. I hear him, but I will say this. How tragic that the true Christmas story should be told at Christmas. <laughs> That's what he's saying. My friends, it's Christmas. And Christmas is about the Christ. We've added to it, yes. And sometimes we've been seduced by all the other things. But really, Christmas is about the birth of Christmas. You know what I find surprising is not so much that Jesus Christ was portrayed at Radio City Music Hall for decades now, but that it's done in New York City. Willingly and openly, frequently and yearly. Not that surprising to me. Well, our text this morning takes us to Luke chapter 2, verse 19. Just one verse. And it reads this way. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. That's right, Mary treasured all these things pondering them in her heart. Our text does tell us here about uh, the young mother Mary. We suppose she is young. And there she is with her child in a barn along with probably mooing cows and buying sheep after the story of rejoicing angels. She is pondering all these things. Well, let's take a look at what she's pondering. Uh, Let's go back just one chapter in in Luke chapter 1. And you see there that there is the uh, prophecy of the birth 
of, um, uh, of John, who later is known as John the Baptist because he baptizes. And of course, his father, who was a priest uh, in the temple in Jerusalem, does not believe it because, well, you know, after years of praying for a child, his wife was unable to bear children, and now she's too old to bear children. And so Zechariah says, you know, I know what you told me, but I don't believe it. And as a result of that, Zechariah becomes mute. He's unable to speak. And what I do find interesting, if you read there in Luke chapter 1, that even though he becomes mute there while serving in the temple, he works the whole day. He does not go home sick. <laughs> it says there that he finished out his, his portion of the day. Uh, verse 23 says, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And of course, then the birth of Jesus Christ is foretold. This is what Mary's pondering. You know, the angel Gabriel comes to her and, and announces that she is going to give birth to the Messiah. And she is, unlike Zechariah, she says, Behold, I am the servant. Verse 38, chapter 1. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. She believed. Now, if anybody had reason not to believe, it would have been Mary, right? How old was Mary? We don't know. But it was very customary in that time, in that age, to get married around the age of 15. And so it's not a stretch to think that she was, you know, a 15, 16-year-old woman. Girl, by our estimation. Can you imagine that? Getting married and giving birth to the Savior? And from there, she goes to visit her, her relative Elizabeth. And we understand that to be her cousin, which means then that Jesus Christ and John the Baptist were distant cousins. And of course, after her visit to her relative Elizabeth, and the two of them were pregnant, the two of them rejoiced, Mary writes a song. Mary writes a song. And it begins this way, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, referring to herself. Me, of all people, I would give birth to the Savior? After 400 years of silence, God had not spoken to the people of Israel in about 400 years, and now he's going to speak, and he's going to speak through Mary. Can you imagine being Mary, young Mary? And so she's pondering all these things. And of course comes the actual birth of John the Baptist. And and his his father's tongue suddenly is loosened. And he can speak once again. And he too speaks of the the, the miracle that is had and all the significance of it. And then we come to Luke chapter 2 and we see the birth of Jesus Christ. And of course Luke does not give us an elongated version. Matthew does that. Mark makes very little mention, and John gives us an understanding, but not from the human perspective, but from the divine perspective. Uh, Christ God being born. Luke chapter 2, Jesus Christ is born, and as a result of the birth, the shepherds who are taking care of their sheep at night uh, are are awoken by a, a multitude of angels who sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Uh, I think that's important that we remember that whole verse. It doesn't just say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Uh, we generally end right there, don't we? Uh, when we ever see whatever commercials or cards or advertisements of any sort, even maybe some churches, say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Oh, that's nice, but that's not the whole of it. Look at the whole of it. It says, among those with whom he, God, is pleased. 
And if you read on, you come to chapter 2, verse 19, and there it says that Mary treasured and she pondered all these things. By, by treasured means meaning that she, she kept and she preserved all these things because they were valuable to her. That's what we do with treasures. My father, just the other day, when I went to visit him, gave me a coin that his brother gave to him. Way back when. It was the last time he saw his elder, older brother. And my father carried that coin with him all these years. A silver coin. And he said, I want you to have it. He treasured it. It was important to him. He still remembers that last conversation. Then he never saw him again. Mary treasured all these things. And she pondered them. She brought all these things together in her mind and she reasoned through it. She thought about it. It wasn't just something that happened. You know how we can be. I mean, we live such busy lives, such exciting lives at times that so many things happen that we don't even remember all the details because our life is always on a move, always on a go. We're always gleaning more information and we tend to forget these things. Mary paused, treasured, and pondered. They were important to her. What else do I think she pondered and treasured? Um, it says here she pondered and treasured all these things, and we just took a look at chapters 1 and 2. But, but let me suggest to you that she also pondered the reality that of all the women in Israel, she would be the one that would bring in the Messiah, that she would bring the Messiah to this earth. She must have been bewildered by it. She's had now about nine months to think about it. Me? And, and if those nine months were not enough, I'm sure the morning sickness and the strange appetites was a constant reminder that to her that she was bringing into this world the promised Savior. I, I would imagine, too, that she's pondering the joy of the shepherds as they made their way to that barn. Now, what, what kind of a barn was it? Well, we don't know. We, we know that it was a place where animals lived. It could have been a barn like we have around here. It could have been, as some shepherds had, that at nighttime they, they would house their, their animals in a cave, in the countryside. And it would be safe. It, it would corral all the animals and it would be safe. It could have been there. But what they also would do in those days is that they would have, just as we have attached garages to our houses, they have attached barns. And there was a section of the house in which their animals would stay, whether it was cattle or sheep or whatever it would be. They would bring those animals in at night. It was safer. It was warmer. They would bring those animals in. And it may very well be that that's where Mary and Joseph stayed. It was in a house, but in the barn section. It would be the equivalent of me placing somebody in my garage overnight. I would never do that to them, but it would be the equivalent. Whatever the case, these shepherds found them. That is, Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus. And if you read there in Luke 2, not only did they find them, but then they went into the town of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, very specific, and they announced it to the people. The people were also bewildered by the reality. The Savior is born? There was a sense of excitement there. Well, the very fact that the angels appeared to the shepherds that night, that magnificent night, 
What a sight of multitudes of angels shimmering in the night sky. That must have been some of the things Mary was pondering. Maybe she was thinking about the calming power of the angel that appeared to her husband, Joseph, and said, Joseph, your wife is pregnant and you're not the father. Had the angel not come and spoken to Joseph, no matter how deeply he loved her, she would have never believed that God came and placed a baby in her womb. He would say, really, Mary? You can't come up with a better story than that? I love you dearly, but I don't believe you. Had it not been for that angel, Joseph would have never believed her. She must have been pondering the fact that her husband was not beside himself, but rather he was beside her and saw her through this whole process of giving birth. (laughs) She must have been thinking about how overwhelming the presence of the angel Gabriel was as he told her that she would become pregnant through the hand of God, the Holy Spirit, and that she of all people, of all people in this entire world, would give birth to the Savior. I don't know that she would believe it had the angel not come and spoken to her. The only reason she believed it was because, well, one, she was pregnant, but two, the angel told her so. Quite a few things to consider, to ponder. Uh, She would be the means by which the world would be blessed. You realize that because of Mary, we are blessed today. That does not make Mary a goddess. It makes Mary a very blessed woman through whom God has blessed us. And had it not been Mary, it would have been someone else. But God chose this particular young lady. And she became the mother, the physical mother of the physical Christ. And she, like us, was a believer in Christ and nothing more. She raised them, yes, but she needed salvation just like you and I do. And eventually she comes to reason. If you read through the gospel text, she comes to reason and understands, as well as his brothers later on, come to a point where they understand that he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Well, she had a lot to ponder. And this morning what I want to do is... Note for you three pictures that the Bible makes for us in order for us to understand everything that is culminated here with the birth of Christ. I want you to see three pictures, which I imagine Mary and maybe even Joseph were thinking about. I can't be sure. Maybe when we reach eternity, we'll ask. I'll ask. What were you thinking of, Mary? But certainly this is plausible, that Mary would be looking backwards and seeing what the Bible says. You see, because the scriptures, the story of Christ begins in the Old Testament. Christmas, the birth of Christ, is not some novel idea. It's not some religious Christian folklore. Oh, what a nice story. This is not about Zeus and the other mythological gods. No, this is about the true God, the true Christ, the true Savior, the creator, the sustainer, the one who comes to not only bless you, but bless you by saving your soul. And it does begin in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all about Jesus Christ. 
again and again, it points to Jesus Christ. And take a look at back in Exodus chapter 25. And there you see the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the anticipation of Jesus Christ. Through the Ark of the Covenant, Christ is anticipated. And in Exodus chapter 25, you see what the Ark of the Covenant is to look like. And I'll, I'll let you read that on your own. It begins at verse 10. It goes down to verse 22. But I want you to see that the Ark of the Covenant was a significant piece of furniture only because of what it represented. It was not a big piece of furniture. It was about oh, just short of four feet long. That's not very big. Uh, two, Just over two feet wide and two feet high. Not very big at all. And it was made of a very hard but common wood called acacia wood. It was a kind of wood that was very common and still is in that part of the world. However, that very common and even ugly wood was covered in gold, both inside and out. The whole of the Ark of the Covenant was covered in gold. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was a cover, and there were two angels, cherubim angels, facing each other, and the wings expanded over the cover. And in the middle of that, 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 that top was the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And inside that piece of furniture, which, by the way, was housed in the temple, and before the temple and the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle was that mobile temple which the people of Israel took from place to place as they traveled through the wilderness. It was housed in that sacred part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. And the purpose of it was that it would be a means by which blood would be sprinkled Blood that was spilled as a sacrifice would then be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant as a means of symbolically showing that their sins are being paid for. Their sins, the sins of an entire nation, are being paid for by sprinkling this blood once a year, by the way. Uh, Exodus 25, 22 reads this way. There above the cover between the two cherubim, that's the mercy seat, above the cherub, cherubim that are over the Ark of the Testimony, I will meet with you. God would reveal himself on that Ark of the Covenant, on the mercy seat, on the cover between the two angels. I will meet with you. How would God reveal himself? Well, what we see in the scriptures that God revealed himself in what we could best describe as, as a smoke, as a presence. It wasn't tangible, but it was visible. And it was a constant reminder that God is constantly with them. It was a constant reminder that God is constantly watching them. You know, I just got back from Cuba and I was reminded somebody's constantly watching you and made me very uneasy. Wherever I went, I don't know who, but somebody's watching me. They knew my face when I got to the airport. This is not what the Ark of the Covenant is about. God is constantly watching you. Look over your shoulder. No, it's God, God is constantly on your side. He's watching over you. He's with you. And the Ark of the Covenant was certainly a reminder of that, but let's not try to pacify everything. God is also a vigilant God in that he's looking to see how we live. He's not only with us, but he wants us to live correctly. Right? He's with us. He was with them. 
It was also a storage container for some uh, of God's most telling object lessons. And you, you might recall what was in there. There was in the uh, Ark of the Covenant the stone tablets, two stone tablets, the second edition of the Ten Commandments. In there, God's law. Also, there was a jar of manna. The manna being the, God, the food that God provided daily for years and decades to the people of Israel as they were in the wilderness. And there was Aaron, who was the high priest, his rod that budded. It was a walking stick. That It was dried up, and yet, miraculously, it begins to develop branches and leaves. It budded. All that was in the Ark of the Covenant. And I mention all this because the Ark of the Covenant was an anticipation of Jesus Christ. God would once again make his dwelling place among his people. But this time, not as a smoke over the mercy seat, but rather as a human being. The Ark of the Covenant was a constant reminder that God would make himself present in man's history. And and of course, that Ark was placed in the Holy of Holies, and it was blocked by a very thick series of, of curtains, of veils. Reminding people that access to God was limited. In fact, the high priest and the high priest alone could go in there once, only once a year. But now through Jesus Christ, there would be full access to God. Amen? Full access to God through Jesus Christ. It's as if God came down on his escalator carrying a baby. And saying, here, I have your Savior. I have your Savior. Jesus Christ, in Christ, we find the mercy seat of God. God dwelling among us. And notice again, the ark is made of that acacia wood, that ugly, common acacia wood, overlaid with gold, which, by the way, is also a picture of Jesus Christ. The gold, of course, referring to the deity of Christ. The common, everyday acacia wood is the humanity of Christ. He is a man, and he is God. And the contents in the Ark of the Covenant, again, points to Jesus Christ. You have the Ten Commandments, the law of God, Referring to the holy standard of God, the manna, the provision of God. Jesus Christ is the bread of life. And the rod, Aaron's priestly rod, reminding us that Jesus Christ is that priestly intercessor who allows us to go from death to life. He's our mediator. In fact, Paul writes about Jesus Christ being our mediator in his first letter to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 5. He says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. Who is that? He says, The man Christ Jesus. The mercy seat means that God has not ignored us. In Jesus Christ, God has intervened. Here we have a picture that God was present among his people, a picture that Christ would save his people. We have a picture of future hope. You see, the Ark of the Covenant is a story all about Jesus Christ, the anticipated Christ. The Ark of the Covenant 
was God's sign of mercy to us. In, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, we're told that he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is to say that in Christ, God has not ignored you. In Christ, God is very much with you. And, and I want to remind you of that this morning. Because it was worthy of Mary to ponder. I'm pretty sure she kept a tab on what she learned as a child. And as she's going through the years, remembering what she learned, remembering what she knew, I don't doubt that she thought of, oh, yes, the Ark of the Covenant was all about my son. About my saving son. And well, we go from the Ark of the Covenant, we go then to the manger. Here's the other picture drawn for us. And the major is the realization of Jesus Christ. As Mary reached Bethlehem and discovered that there was no room for her or for Joseph, I would imagine she was very much surprised. Imagine, ladies, if you got to the hospital ready to give birth and they would say, oh, sorry, there's no room in a maternity ward. There's no room for you. What do you do? You jump back in the car and go to the next hospital. Around here, that would be a little difficult. How could it be that there would be no legitimate place for the Messiah to be born? Imagine what was running through her mind. Well, sir, if you only knew who was in my womb, you would make room for me right now. And as the labor pains increased, Mary must have been very, very perplexed because here she is probably laying in a stack of hay in a dark, smelly barn, wondering how in the world is it that I'm to give birth here? And before the shepherds arrived, Mary must have been wondering why in the midst of this dirty, barn animal-ridden place am I giving birth and I could only imagine that there were other latecomers there as well, other people in the barn. That's very possible. Imagine what kind of day and night they had listening to Mary give birth. I don't believe it was in any way a very private experience. This is where she lay as she gave birth to the Savior of the world. My friends, the manger is the realization of Jesus Christ. Go back to Luke chapter 2, verse 16. It tells us very clearly that the manger was nothing more than a trough or a, a, a feed box for barn animals. And I would imagine that it was comfortable, but it was certainly was dirty, rustic. No mother today would want to place their baby in a trough. But it was also necessary. Why? Because the baby had to sleep. Because Mary had to sleep. Because Mary had to get some rest. You see, the manger tells us that the God-man has come. The manger tells us that not only has God come, but God has come in the version of a man. Isaiah 53, 2 describes this man. He says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. If you saw Jesus Christ in the crowd, you wouldn't have said, well, now there's a leader. Well, there's a handsome man. No, there was nothing about Jesus to attract him. Nothing, it reads this way, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. You see, Jesus Christ was very much like the common acacia wood. And here we see, through the manger, 
that God left his dwelling place in heaven in order to meet us at our point of greatest need, spiritually. The righteous one without sin came in order to become sin for the ones without righteousness. Matthew 3.15 says that Christ came to fulfill all righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he became sin for us. Romans 8.3 reads, in the likeness of sinful man he came. And here he is being laid in a manger to rest. Here we see the everyday humanity of Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John chapter 1, beginning at verse 10 and 11, and then again in verse 14, we see that he came to this world, but from the very beginning, this world made no room for him. Nonetheless, he made his dwelling place among us. And what we see in this manger was the object of all glory in heaven and all object of glory under heaven being laid to rest in the most humble of places, cloaked in humanity, the redeemer of humanity. In the manger, the Savior was realized and salvation would be made possible. Let me point out one more picture to you this morning. We went from the Ark of the Covenant, which anticipated Christ. The manger is the realization of Christ. But think of the cross. The cross would be the culmination of Christ. The culmination of Christ. Uh, we see very clearly in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, uh, the humility that Christ was exposed to when he comes to the cross. He's about 33 years of age when he does come to the place where he would be crucified. And as you well know, the cross was a torturous place. And it brought death, not by bleeding, but by suffocation. That's how you die on a cross. You suffocated to death. It was a slow, suffocating death. And it certainly made a, spect a spectacle of anybody who was hanging from it. It was a place for criminals. It was a place that brought shame, agony, and eventually death. And though Jesus Christ was the one who created all things, man did not acknowledge him as a creator. And they placed him on a cross. This had to be. Uh, you know, it's said that the Romans placed Christ on a cross. And some people say, no, it wasn't the Romans, it was the Jews. The Jews placed Christ on the cross. But you know, really, when you read the scriptures, and you don't have to read it very well, it's because it's very clear. It wasn't the Jews who put Christ on the cross. It was you and me. Amen. It was your sins, my sins, that put placed Christ on the cross. Amen. We did it. It was our sins. And, and, and through the cross, the purpose of Christ is fulfilled. Obediently, he went to Golgotha, that hill, that mountain of, of skulls. And he did so in order to fulfill what the Ark of the Covenant said he would do. The Ark of the Covenant said he would die, that his blood would be spilled so that he could pay for our sins, so that our sins could be atoned for. Death had to be had in order for our sins to be paid for. Somebody had to pay the price. Either we pay ourselves or Christ would. And he chose to do it for us. So we read this in Romans chapter 3, beginning of verse 25 and then 26. It reads this way. God presented him, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement, 
through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And we conclude with this then. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. It says that those who chose to believe in Christ, those who choose to believe in Christ, to those who receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. You see, the cross is the culmination of the purpose of Christ. In fact, the birth of Christ, Christmas, would be of no significance, really, unless Jesus Christ went to the cross. And because of Christ, then, we could be children of God, children born of God, a new birth, a rebirth. And he offers that to us, to anyone who would believe and come to him. I don't think it would be fitting for the man who was to die naked on a cross to be robed in royal garments when he was born. Uh, now, I think it's far more appropriate for the one who would die on a cross to be born in a barn. A humble birth, a humble death. I think that's more appropriate. The manger and the cross stand at the two ends of the life of Jesus Christ. And they are so fitting, so fitting for him. My friends, the cross is indeed the fulfillment of God's plan to save us. His plan was pictured in the Ark of the Covenant. His plan was promised in the manger. His plan was made available at the cross. And so we celebrate Christmas because God promises we're not idle, empty, religious jargon, but rather they're words of life. We celebrate Christmas because Christ was born and Christ died. He resurrected and he ascended into heaven. And he's promised to come back for his own. We long for that day, right? You know, as things go poorly in our own lives as a nation, there's so much complaining about how, how wretched some people would say our nation has become because of the politics and the lack of morality. And we say, oh, Lord Jesus, so come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. I have jokingly said many times, today would be a good day. He knows when he will come back. We do not have to rush him. But I do hope you anticipate his return. I do hope you believe that when he said he would come, I hope you believe that he will. And that you prepare yourself for that day. Mary had much to treasure. She had quite a few things to ponder. uh, More so than most teenagers would. And so she did. For in her arms was the fulfillment of the grace of God to us. How much more, my friends, do we have to ponder? How much more then do we have to treasure? And I hope that this week, as we approach Christmas Day, you will find time to do just that. As you move from back and forth from the mall to store to Amazon, wherever it is you do your shopping, wherever it is you go to see family and friends, whatever it is you bake, whatever it is you eat, whatever it is you listen to, I hope you find time to treasure and ponder the significance of Christmas.
you will not regret it. It'll be a Christmas to remember. It'll be a Christmas to remember.